Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Tame the Shrew podcast. This week, we're going to be recapping our most recent journal club, where we're talking about a couple of papers that deal with the ED management evaluation of nephrolithiasis. We're joined here today by Drs. Bennett Lane, Dr. Diego Paraguire, and Dr. Jess Kohler, who are going to be discussing some articles here. Guys, why don't you take it away? So nephrolithiasis, renal colic, kidney stones, whatever you want to call it, uh, and I've certainly uh, called it any, any number of things, is a common presentation. It's common enough that I sort of have had my own up-and-down relationship with it uh, uh, during residency. Um, and some of you may be aware about the roller coaster study where they built a 3D model of a human kidney, put some stones in a solution, and then rode that up and down a, a roller coaster. We're not going to talk about that paper. Uh, it's out there for you to look up, um, but un- unlikely to be an intervention we're going to recommend. So it wasn't a focus for our journal club. Um, this common problem, you know, classically, people are going to come in with flank pain, maybe radiating to the groin. They're going to have some potential nausea and vomiting. They might be uncomfortable and constantly moving on the gurney. And they might have some urinary symptoms. Um, That's the classic presentation. Certainly there's a ton of variation in reality. And one of the things we have to make sure as emergency physicians is not to focus on someone who says, I have a history of kidney stones, comes in with pain, and, and we attribute everything to that without considering the other alternative etiologies, somewhere between 3 and 6% of people will have something else going on. So we probably won't talk about uh, the rest of that uh, in this talk, uh, but we're saying at the outset to consider that you, we, you do have to rule out, uh, at least in your mind, uh, alternative sources for the pain. So initially, when a patient that I see in the emergency department that presents with what I think is a kidney stone, if we're taking away the other differentials here, I'll usually, um, after performing a thorough history and physical exam, we'll go ahead and um, start with my management, which would usually consist of a CBC, a BMP, and a urinalysis. Uh, I think if it's purely like that that you're worried about, I think you're overall um, okay just ordering those lab tests. Obviously, if you're concerned of other etiologies uh, and you're concerned for like upper abdominal pain, then you'll probably add on other laboratory studies like a lipase. Um, but when you are pretty much dead on with your diagnosis, that's basically the studies that I worry about. I want to make sure that the patient's renal function is uh, doing well, that there is no acute renal failure or injury there. I want to make sure there's no signs of a infection in their urine, which might make me worry about sepsis or an obstructing stone. Um, a CBC, just because, again, the differential is broad and you want to make sure that there's no significant signs of infection. Um, and then after that, rapidly, I'll move on to my management of their pain, which I think is the primary reason most of these patients are coming to the emergency department is because they're in excruciating pain. And so what we have to do is realize that the experience of renal colic is severe and effective analgesia is crucial. And that will lead me to my paper that um, I reviewed. Usually, my go-to medications for renal colic are an NSAID of some sort. Typically, for me, it's going to be Toradol or Ketorolac and some other opioid analgesic. Um, for me, again, it's going to be morphine, either 4 to 8 milligrams, and I'll typically dose those up to twice each. Uh, for me, I find that those are 
for the most part, effective in most of my patients. It's rare that I would have to go on to something else. Um, but one of the sexy topics that's been discussed lately in the recent years has been the use of IV lidocaine in the treatment of renal colic. Um, there have been a, new, a number of uh, case series and case reports on the use of IV lidocaine, as well as two randomized controlled trials published in 2016 for the use of IV lidocaine in renal colic, one of which did show a statistically significant difference uh, when using IV lidocaine in comparison to IV morphine. Um, and then the other randomized controlled trial, which used it in conjunction with IV morphine, which did not really show a statistically significant difference in pain control when compared to just IV morphine alone. Um, the paper that I uh, reviewed is by Motov S. et al. Um, it's out of Maimonides emergency department in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it's called Pain Management of Renal Colic in the Emergency Department with IV lidocaine. The reason why I chose this article is because it is the most recent study on the use of IV lidocaine for renal colic. And it's important because, again, the experience that these patients are experiencing is severe and analgesia is crucial and important. Um, the use of traditional pain management may be contraindicated or limited due to allergies in certain population of patients, and so we are not always able to use NSAIDs or opioids on these patients, and so alternatives merit consideration. And then also, sometimes, although we can use these medications like Toradol and morphine, sometimes it's not enough, and so rescue medications should also be investigated, and I think this is one of the articles that kind of goes into that. So the study is a single-centered retrospective chart review or case series. It includes adult patients in 18 years of age and older, and what it did is it saw patients that came in from 2014 to 2017 into their emergency department with pain believed to be renal colic in origin and whose final diagnosis was either nephrolithiasis, renal colic, or obstructive uropathy. And they were all treated with IV lidocaine for purposes of pain control. Any patients that had any like contraindications or allergies to lidocaine were not included in the study. And ultimately, what they obtained was information on the age, gender, chief complaint, final diagnosis, dose, route, frequency of lidocaine administration, their pain scores before and after administration, and whether or not IV lidocaine was administered as a primary analgesic or as a rescue drug. And then what they did is they analyzed the data and compared the pre- and post-pain scores in all patients that received the IV lidocaine, and then also compared the ones that received it as a primary drug and those that received it as a rescue medication. Overall, they had a total of 44 patients who were in the study. 22 of them received lidocaine as a primary analgesic, and two, 22 of them received it as a rescue medication. Overall, the weight-based dose was about 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Uh, the primary analgesic group, 45% of them received IV lidocaine alone, 45% of them received it in combination with Catorlac, and 10% of them received it in combination with morphine. In the rescue group, 75% had received Catorlac before, 10% of them had received morphine, and 18% of them had received a combination of Catorlac and morphine. Overall, the administration of IV lidocaine resulted in a decrease in pain score of 6.3 points. The primary analgesia group decreased pain scores by 7.4 group points, and the rescue group decreased the pain score by 5.2 points. 
So my take-home points for this study is that you got to take a couple things into consideration. One is that the study was very small. It only included 44 patients. It was a retrospective study, but it was recent, and it did compare the use of primary lidocaine treatment with rescue treatment. There was a statistically significant difference in pain scores when using IV lidocaine, but the big caveat there is that they, there was a lack of a control group. So basically, it was IV lidocaine being compared to IV lidocaine. And so we weren't really able to differentiate whether or not the effects of the ketorolac uh, or the morphine had any significant influences on the reduction in pain scores. I think also at the end of the day, this study is not going to change my overall practice pattern in terms of analgesia and medications that I'll be giving to my patients in the emergency department. What I think this would do, though, is open me up to consider IV lidocaine in patients who have either strong contraindications or allergies to morphine and toradol, or those that are not obtaining adequate pain control after using morphine and toradol. All right, moving on to the diagnosis uh, or imaging portion of a patient's stay. If you haven't already decided that the patient has a kidney stone and you want to figure out if they truly do um, and really what your next steps are going to be, most people will tend to order a CT scan. Um, it's estimated that about 70% of patients diagnosed with a kidney stone in the emergency department receive a CT scan during their stay. Um, the paper that I looked at was Daniels et al. in Annals of Emergency Medicine in 2016 uh, coming out of the Yale Emergency Department, which looked at the combination of a clinical scoring system called the STONE score, which incorporates sex, the timing or duration of symptoms, origin or race of the patient, nausea, and erythrocytes or hematuria on the urine dip, and combining that with point-of-care ultrasounds to determine if you could make a diagnosis of a symptomatic stone. Uh, this was a single-centered perspective of observational study of any adult that was slated to get a CT scan uh, because the initial provider was concerned for nephrolithiasis. The study had over 800 patients enrolled where they all got a CT scan due to concern for nephrolithiasis, and they also got a ultrasound performed by whichever provider was on that day, whether that be a fellowship-trained attending or a newer resident on their ultrasound rotation. The way the authors broke up the results uh, were a combination of their stone score, either low, moderate, or high, and then how much hydronephrosis was seen on ultrasound. They tended to break it up from any hydronephrosis, and then they grouped moderate and severe hydronephrosis together. And what they found was in patients with a low stone score and any hydronephrosis, they had a mildly increased sensitivity up to 64%, but the specificity is really where it increased. Patients with a low stone score and moderate to severe hydronephrosis had a specificity increase to 98%, as well as a positive likelihood ratio of 22. Patients that were in the moderate stone score group with moderate to severe hydro had a specificity that changed from initially 42% when you, you did not include ultrasound to 92% when you did include the ultrasound findings. Interestingly, the patients that had a high stone score did not have any changes in their sensitivity, specificity, or likelihood ratios. The secondary endpoint of this study was actually whether these patients had any urologic 
intervention in 90 days. The patients that had moderate or greater hydronephrosis did have an increase of specificity to 99% in the low group and 86% in the moderate group, meaning that patients that had the low or moderate scores and then had a good amount of hydronephrosis on their ultrasound did need a urologic intervention. They also looked at alternative findings or acute alternative diagnoses in the emergency department. Uh, When looking at their breakdown of these, most of them are actually UTIs and pyelonephritis, which should be able to be differentiated on your your urinalysis. The other alternative findings uh, were diverticulitis and appendicitis, both of which should be on your differential if you do a thorough physical exam. Based on the results of the study, my take-home points are that point-of-care ultrasound can help move up the kidney stone on your differential, especially if there is hydronephrosis, um, as well as if there is any moderate or severe hydronephrosis on the ultrasound. It can really help determine if the patient's going to need urologic intervention in 90 days. So a CT may be necessary in that category to really further characterize the stone. All right. So we've got a patient. We've pursued some diagnostics and identified a stone. Um, the likeliest outcome is that this patient's going to go home from the emergency department, hopefully with some pain control, uh, in addition to the diagnostic uh, efforts that we've made. About 90% of patients, uh, generally speaking, will go home uh, from a presentation for a kidney stone. And when they go home, we often send them with a variety of prescriptions. In my practice, I often write prescriptions for uh, NSAIDs um, simply to help people remember to do that and to help them with dosing in addition to potentially assisting them with actually obtaining the medication in some cases. I also um, often prescribe tamsulosin, and that leads me to uh, one of the controversies um, or at least variabilities in practice around kidney stones. Um, And a recent clinical trial was published in JAMA Internal Medicine by uh, Meltzer and colleagues, um, which examined the effect of tamsulosin on the passage of symptomatic stones in the ureter. This study checks the box for a lot of high-quality study designs. It was double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized clinical trial. I would also call it a multi-center trial, although the authors are very careful to not use that term appropriately so because they had a sort of a funny logistical process in which they had a phase one and then a phase two and only phase two was multi-center. But overall, you know, the bulk of patients came from a multi-center effort here in the United States. Uh, So the patient population is quite similar to uh, what we see here in our emergency department. Um, And probably this, this study has some generalizability to our population. Their primary outcome was very patient-centered. It was a stone passage that the patient saw or captured the actual stone uh, by day 28. They had a variety of secondary outcomes, the bulk of which were very well-designed, including things like uh, the need for surgical intervention uh, later on and the need for hospitalization. They ultimately were able to recruit 512 emergency department patients. Um, They excluded... A fair number of the people they evaluated for reasons they labeled other. More than 10% of the people they evaluated were excluded based on other reasons. You have to go into the study protocol to examine that. That's a pretty large number, and overall they excluded a a large percentage of the people they screened. But uh, for the people that they screened, if if you're looking at someone who's similar in your emergency department, I think it's a pretty good study. You're looking for an adult with a stone that is less than uh, 9 millimeters in size. You're looking for a stone that's relatively small um, 
And that is one of the differences between this study and some of the other ones that have exam- examined tamsulosin. Ultimately, the study is a negative study. It showed no benefit for tamsulosin. Um, and I think that's an important result because uh, many of us prescribe tamsulosin. Uh, and this is the largest uh, randomized trial in the United States, and it shows no benefit for the medication. And I think a lot of people will point to Cochrane reviews, uh, which have examined tamsulosin's efficacy and found a statistically significant benefit. Worth noting that this study by Meltzer and colleagues was powered to detect a 15% difference in stone passage. And if you look at the well, uh, well-designed, high-quality studies in, this, in that subgroup of the Cochrane analysis, the effect that they estimate is actually less than what the Meltzer study was powered to detect. So from a research perspective, the fact that Meltzer obtained a negative result is perhaps not that surprising. Um, and ultimately, uh, I think my personal practice pattern is still going to remain to offer this medication. But it, reading this paper by Meltzer and examining it will help me uh, counsel patients better about the relative benefits of it. And if they, uh, you know, in, as part of a shared decision-making model, uh, elect not to fill the prescription or elect not to have me write the prescription, I think that that's very reasonable and that sharing that, you know, this medication may have a small effect in some people uh, is probably the right way to, to describe the state of the literature at the present time.